Book six, chapter one, paragraphs twenty three to fifty four of Progress and Poverty by Henry George. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Three from combinations of workmen. It is evident from the laws of distribution, as previously traced, that combinations of workmen can advance wages, and this not at the expense of other workmen, as is sometimes said, nor yet at the expense of capital, as is generally believed, but, ultimately, at the expense of rent. That no general advance in wages can be secured by combination, that any advance in particular wages thus secured must reduce other wages or the profits of capital, or both, are ideas that spring from the erroneous notion that wages are drawn from capital. The fallacy of these ideas is demonstrated not alone by the laws of distribution as we have worked them out, but by experience so far as it has gone. The advance of wages in particular trades by combinations of workmen, of which there are many examples, has nowhere shown any effect in lowering wages in other trades, or in reducing the rate of profits. Except as it may affect his fixed capital or current engagements, a diminution of wages can benefit, and an increase of wages injure an employer only in so far as it gives him an advantage or puts him at a disadvantage as compared with other employers. The employer who first succeeds in reducing the wages of his hands, or is first compelled to pay in advance, gains an advantage, or is put at a disadvantage in regard to his competitors, which ceases when the movement includes them also. So far, however, as the change in wages affects his contracts or stock on hand, by changing the relative cost of production, it may be to him a real gain or loss, though this gain or loss, being purely relative, disappears when the whole community is considered. And, if the change in wages works a change in the relative demand, it may render capital fixed in machinery, buildings, or otherwise, more or less profitable. But in this a new equilibrium is soon reached, for, especially in a progressive country, fixed capital is only somewhat less mobile than circulating capital. If there is too little in a certain form, the tendency of capital to assume that form soon brings it up to the required amount. If there is too much, the cessation of increment soon restores the level. But, while the change in the rate of wages in any particular occupation may induce a change in the relative demand for labour, it can produce no change in the aggregate demand. For instance, let us suppose that a combination of the workmen engaged in any particular manufacture raise wages in one country, while a combination of employers reduce wages in the same manufacture in another country. If the change be great enough, the demand or part of the demand in the first country will now be supplied by importation of such manufactures from the second. But, evidently, this increase in the importations of a particular kind must necessitate either a corresponding decrease in importations of other kinds, or a corresponding increase in exportations. For it is only with the produce of its labour and capital that one country can demand, or can obtain in exchange, the produce of the labour and capital of another. The idea that the lowering of wages can increase, or the increase of wages can diminish, the trade of a country, is as baseless as the idea that the prosperity of a country can be increased by taxes on imports, or diminished by the removal of restrictions on trade. 
If all wages in any particular country were to be doubled, that country would continue to export and import the same things, and in the same proportions. For exchange is determined not by absolute, but by relative cost of production. But, if wages in some branches of production were doubled, and in others not increased, or not increased so much, there would be a change in the proportion of the various things imported, but no change in the proportion between exports and imports. While most of the objections made to the combination of workmen for the advance of wages are thus baseless, while the success of such combinations cannot reduce other wages, or decrease the profits of capital, or injuriously affect national prosperity, yet so great are the difficulties in the way of the effective combinations of labourers, that the good that can be accomplished by them is extremely limited, while there are inherent disadvantages in the process. To raise wages in a particular occupation or occupations, which is all that any combination of workmen yet made has been equal to attempting, is manifestly a task the difficulty of which progressively increases. For the higher are wages of any particular kind raised above their normal level with other wages, the stronger are the tendencies to bring them back. Thus, if a printer's union, by a successful or threatened strike, raised the wages of typesetting ten per cent above the normal rate as compared with other wages, relative demand and supply are at once affected. On the one hand, there is a tendency to a diminution of the amount of typesetting called for, and, on the other, the higher rate of wages tends to increase the number of compositors in ways the strongest combination cannot altogether prevent. If the increase be 20%, these tendencies are much stronger. If it is 50%, they become stronger still, and so on. So that practically, even in countries like England, where the lines between different trades are much more distinct and difficult to pass than in countries like the United States, that which trades unions, even when supporting each other, can do in the way of raising wages is comparatively little, and this little, moreover, is confined to their own sphere and does not affect the lower stratum of unorganized laborers, whose condition most needs alleviation, and ultimately determines that of all above them. The only way by which wages could be raised to any extent, and with any permanence by this method, would be by a general combination, such as was aimed at by the internationals, which should include laborers of all kinds. But such a combination may be set down as practically impossible, for the difficulties of combination, great enough in the most highly paid and smallest trades, become greater and greater as we descend in the industrial scale. Nor in the struggle of endurance, which is the only method which combinations not to work for less than a certain minimum have of effecting the increase of wages, must it be forgotten who are the real parties pitted against each other. It is not labour and capital. It is labourers on the one side, and the owners of land on the other. If the contest were between labour and capital, it would be on much more equal terms. For the power of capital to stand out is only some little greater than that of labour. Capital not only ceases to earn anything when not used, but it goes to waste. For in nearly all its forms it can be maintained only by constant reproduction. But land will not starve like labourers, or go to waste like capital. Its owners can wait. They may be inconvenienced, it is true, but what is inconvenience to them is destruction to capital and starvation to labour. 
The agricultural laborers in certain parts of England are now endeavoring to combine for the purpose of securing an increase in their miserably low wages. If it was capital that was receiving the enormous difference between the real produce of their labor and the pittance they get out of it, they would have but to make an effective combination to secure success. For the farmers, who are their direct employers, can afford to go without labor but little, if any, better than the laborers can afford to go without wages. But the farmers cannot yield much without a reduction of rent, and thus it is between the landowners and the laborers that the real struggle must come. Suppose the combination to be so thorough as to include all agricultural laborers, and to prevent from doing so all who might be tempted to take their places. The laborers refuse to work except at a considerable advance of wages. The farmers can give it only by securing a considerable reduction of rent, and have no way to back their demands except as the laborers back theirs, by refusing to go on with production. If cultivation thus come to a deadlock, the landowners would lose only their rent, while the land improved by lying fallow. But the laborers would starve. And if English laborers of all kinds were united in one grand league for a general increase of wages, the real contest would be the same, and under the same conditions. For wages could not be increased except to the decrease of rent. And in a general deadlock, landowners could live, while laborers of all sorts must starve or emigrate. The owners of the land of England are by virtue of their ownership the masters of England. So true it is that to whomsoever the soil at any time belongs, to him belong the fruits of it. The white parasols and the elephants mad with pride passed with the grant of English land, and the people at large can never regain their power until that grant is resumed. What is true of England is universally true. It may be said that such a deadlock in production could never occur. This is true, but true only because no such thorough combination of labor as might produce it is possible. But the fixed and definite nature of land enables landowners to combine much more easily and efficiently than either laborers or capitalists. How easy and efficient their combination is, there are many historical examples. And the absolute necessity for the use of land, and the certainty in all progressive countries that it must increase in value, produce among landowners, without any formal combination, all the effects that could be produced by the most rigorous combination among labourers or capitalists. Deprive a labourer of opportunity of employment, and he will soon be anxious to get work on any terms. But when the receding wave of speculation leaves nominal land values clearly above real values, Whoever has lived in a growing country knows with what tenacity landowners hold on. And besides these practical difficulties in the plan of forcing by endurance an increase of wages, there are in such methods inherent disadvantages which workingmen should not blink. I speak without prejudice, for I am still an honorary member of the union which, while working at my trade, I always loyally supported. But see, the methods by which a trade union can alone act are necessarily destructive. Its organization is necessarily tyrannical. A strike, which is the only recourse by which a trade union can enforce its demands, is a destructive contest, 
just such a contest as that to which an eccentric called the money king once in the early days of san francisco challenged a man who had taunted him with meanness that they should go down to the wharf and alternately toss twenty-dollar pieces into the bay until one gave in the struggle of endurance involved in a strike is really what it has often been compared to a war and like all war it lessens wealth and the organization for it must, like the organization for war, be tyrannical. As even the man who would fight for freedom must, when he enters an army, give up his personal freedom and become a mere part in a great machine, so must it be with workmen who organize for a strike. These combinations are, therefore, necessarily destructive of the very things which workmen seek to gain through them, wealth and freedom. There is an ancient Hindu mode of compelling the payment of a just debt, traces of something akin to which Sir Henry Maine has found in the laws of the Irish Brehens. It is called sitting dharna, the creditor seeking enforcement of his debt by sitting down at the door of the debtor and refusing to eat or drink until he is paid. Like this is the method of labor combinations. In their strikes, trades unions sit dharna, but, unlike the Hindu, they have not the power of superstition to back them. 4. From Cooperation It is now, and has been for some time, the fashion to preach cooperation as the sovereign remedy for the grievances of the working classes. But, unfortunately for the efficacy of cooperation as a remedy for social evils, these evils, as we have seen, do not arise from any conflict between labor and capital. And if cooperation were universal, it could not raise wages or relieve poverty. This is readily seen. Cooperation is of two kinds cooperation in supply and cooperation in production. Now, cooperation in supply, let it go as far as it may in excluding middlemen, only reduces the cost of exchanges. It is simply a device to save labor and eliminate risk, and its effect upon distribution can be only that of the improvements and inventions which have in modern times so wonderfully cheapened and facilitated exchanges, viz. to increase rent. And cooperation in production is simply a reversion to that form of wages which still prevails in the whaling service, and is there termed a lay. It is the substitution of proportionate wages for fixed wages, a substitution of which there are occasional instances in almost all employments. Or, if the management is left to the workman, and the capitalist but takes his proportion of the net produce, it is simply the system that has prevailed to a large extent in European agriculture since the days of the Roman Empire, the colonial or Matea system. All that is claimed for cooperation in production is that it makes the workman more active and industrious. In other words, that it increases the efficiency of labor. Thus its effect is in the same direction as the steam engine, the cotton gin, the reaping machine. In short, all the things in which material progress consists, and it can produce only the same result, viz. the increase of rent. It is a striking proof of how first principles are ignored in dealing with social problems, that in current economic and semi-economic literature so much importance is attached to cooperation as a means for increasing wages and relieving poverty, that it can have no such general tendency as apparent. 
waiving all the difficulties that under present conditions beset cooperation either of supply or of production, and supposing it so extended as to supplant present methods, that cooperative stores made the connection between producer and consumer with the minimum of expense, and cooperative workshops, factories, farms, and mines abolished the employing capitalist who pays fixed wages, and greatly increased the efficiency of labor. What then? Why, simply that it would become possible to produce the same amount of wealth with less labor, and consequently that the owners of land, the source of all wealth, could command a greater amount of wealth for the use of their land. This is not a matter of mere theory. It is proved by experience and by existing facts. Improved methods and improved machinery have the same effect that cooperation aims at of reducing the cost of bringing commodities to the consumer and increasing the efficiency of labor and it is in these respects that the older countries have the advantage of new settlements but as experience has amply shown improvements in the methods and machinery of production and exchange have no tendency to improve the condition of the lowest class and wages are lower and poverty deeper where exchange goes on at the minimum of cost and production has the benefit of the best machinery the advantage but adds to rent. But suppose cooperation between producers and landowners. That would simply amount to the payment of rent in kind, the same system under which much land is rented in California and the southern states where the landowner gets a share of the crop. Save as a matter of computation, it in no wise differs from the system which prevails in England of a fixed money rent. Call it cooperation if you choose, the terms of the cooperation would still be fixed by the laws which determine rent, and wherever land was monopolized, increase in productive power would simply give the owners of the land the power to demand a larger share. That cooperation is by so many believed to be the solution of the labor question arises from the fact that, where it has been tried, it has in many instances improved perceptibly the condition of those immediately engaged in it. But this is due simply to the fact that these cases are isolated. Just as industry, economy, or skill may improve the condition of the workmen who possess them in superior degree, but cease to have this effect when improvement in these respects becomes general, so a special advantage in procuring supplies, or a special efficiency given to some labor, may secure advantages which would be lost as soon as these improvements became so general as to affect the general relations of distribution. And the truth is that, save possibly in educational effects, cooperation can produce no general results that competition will not produce. Just as the cheap for cash stores have a similar effect upon prices as the cooperative supply associations, so does competition in production lead to a similar adjustment of forces and division of proceeds as would cooperative production. That increasing productive power does not add to the reward of labor is not because of competition, but because competition is one-sided. Land, without which there can be no production, is monopolized, and the competition of producers for its use forces wages to a minimum and gives all the advantage of increasing productive power to landowners, in higher rents and increased land values destroy this monopoly, and competition could exist only to accomplish the end which cooperation aims at, to give to each what he fairly earns. 
Destroy this monopoly, and industry must become the cooperation of equals. 5. From governmental direction and interference. The limits within which I wish to keep this book will not permit an examination in detail of the methods in which it is proposed to mitigate or extirpate poverty by governmental regulation of industry and accumulation, and which in their most thoroughgoing form are called socialistic. Nor is it necessary, for the same defects attach to them all. These are the substitution of governmental direction for the play of individual action, and the attempt to secure by restriction what can better be secured by freedom. As to the truths that are involved in socialistic ideas, I shall have something to say hereafter. But it is evident that whatever savours of regulation and restriction is in itself bad, and should not be resorted to if any other mode of accomplishing the same end presents itself. For instance, to take one of the simplest and mildest of the class of measures I refer to, a graduated tax on incomes. The object at which it aims, the reduction or prevention of immense concentrations of wealth, is good. But this means involves the employment of a large number of officials clothed with inquisitorial powers, temptations to bribery and perjury, and all other means of evasion, which beget a demoralization of opinion and put a premium upon unscrupulousness and a tax upon conscience. And, finally, just in proportion as the tax accomplishes its effect, a lessening in the incentive to the accumulation of wealth, which is one of the strong forces of industrial progress. While, if the elaborate schemes for regulating everything and finding a place for everybody could be carried out, we should have a state of society resembling that of ancient Peru, or that which, to their eternal honour, the Jesuits instituted and so long maintained in Paraguay. I will not say that such a state as this is not a better social state than that to which we now seem to be tending, for in ancient Peru, though production went on under the greatest disadvantages from the want of iron and the domestic animals, yet there was no such thing as want and the people went to their work with songs. But this it is unnecessary to discuss. Socialism in anything approaching such a form modern society cannot successfully attempt. The only force that has ever proved competent for it, a strong and definite religious faith, is wanting and is daily growing less. We have passed out of the socialism of the tribal state, and cannot re-enter it again except by a retrogression that would involve anarchy and perhaps barbarism. Our government, as is already plainly evident, would break down in the attempt. Instead of an intelligent award of duties and earnings, we should have a Roman distribution of Sicilian corn, and the demagogue would soon become the imperator. The ideal of socialism is grand and noble, and it is, I am convinced, possible of realization. But such a state of society cannot be manufactured. It must grow. Society is an organism, not a machine. It can live only by the individual life of its parts. And in the free and natural development of all the parts will be secured the harmony of the whole. All that is necessary to social regeneration is included in the motto of those Russian patriots sometimes called nihilists, land and liberty. 6. From a more general distribution of land. 
there is a rapidly growing feeling that the tenure of land is in some manner connected with the social distress which manifests itself in the most progressive countries but this feeling as yet mostly shows itself in propositions which look to the more general division of landed property in england free trade in land tenant right or the equal partition of landed estates among heirs in the united states restrictions upon the size of individual holdings it has been also proposed in england that the state should buy out the landlords and in the united states that grants of money should be made to enable the settlements of colonies upon public lands the former proposition let us pass for the present the latter so far as its distinctive feature is concerned falls into the category of the measures considered in the last section it needs no argument to show to what abuses and demoralization grants of public money or credit would lead how what the english writers call free trade in land the removal of duties and restrictions upon conveyances could facilitate the division of ownership in agricultural land i cannot see though it might to some extent have that effect as regards town property the removal of restrictions upon buying and selling would merely permit the ownership of land to assume more quickly the form to which it tends now that the tendency in great britain is to concentration is shown by the fact that in spite of the difficulties interposed by the cost of transfer land ownership has been and is steadily concentrating there and that this tendency is a general one is shown by the fact that the same process of concentration is observable in the united states i say this unhesitatingly in regard to the united states although statistical tables are sometimes quoted to show a different tendency. But how, in such a country as the United States, the ownership of land may be really concentrating, while census tables show rather a diminution in the average size of holdings, is readily seen. As land is brought into use, and, with the growth of population, passes from a lower to a higher or intenser use, the size of holdings tends to diminish. A small stock range would be a large farm, a small farm would be a large orchard, vineyard, nursery or vegetable garden, and a patch of land which would be small even for these purposes would make a very large city property. Thus the growth of population, which puts lands to higher or intenser uses, tends naturally to reduce the size of holdings, by a process very marked in new countries. But with this may go on a tendency to the concentration of land ownership, which, though not revealed by tables which show the average size of holdings, is just as clearly seen. Average holdings of one acre in a city may show a much greater concentration of land ownership than average holdings of 640 acres in a newly settled township. I refer to this to show the fallacy in the deductions drawn from the tables which are frequently paraded in the United States to show that land monopoly is an evil that will cure itself. On the contrary, it is obvious that the proportion of landowners to the whole population is constantly decreasing. And that there is in the United States, as there is in Great Britain, a strong tendency to the concentration of land ownership in agriculture is clearly seen. As in England and Ireland small farms are being thrown into larger ones, so in New England, according to the reports of the Massachusetts Bureau of Labor Statistics, is the size of farms increasing. This tendency is even more clearly noticeable in the newer states and territories. 
Only a few years ago a farm of 320 acres would, under the system of agriculture prevailing in the northern parts of the Union, have anywhere been a large one, probably as much as one man could cultivate to advantage. In California now there are farms, not cattle ranges, of five, ten, twenty, forty, and sixty thousand acres, while the model farm of Dakota embraces a hundred thousand acres. The reason is obvious. It is the application of machinery to agriculture and the general tendency to production on a large scale. The same tendency which substitutes the factory, with its army of operatives, for many independent handloom weavers, is beginning to exhibit itself in agriculture. Now, the existence of this tendency shows two things. First, that any measures which merely permit or facilitate the greater subdivision of land would be inoperative, and second, that any measures which would compel it would have a tendency to check production. If land in large bodies can be cultivated more cheaply than land in small bodies, to restrict ownership to small bodies will reduce the aggregate production of wealth, and, in so far as such restrictions are imposed and take effect, will they tend to diminish the general productiveness of labour and capital. The effort, therefore, to secure a fairer division of wealth by such restrictions is liable to the drawback of lessening the amount to be divided. The device is like that of the monkey, who, dividing the cheese between the cats, equalized matters by taking a bite off the biggest piece. But there is not merely this objection, which weighs against every proposition to restrict the ownership of land, with a force that increases with the efficiency of the proposed measure. There is the further and fatal objection that restriction will not secure the end which is alone worth aiming at, a fair division of the produce. It will not reduce rent, and therefore cannot increase wages. It may make the comfortable classes larger, but will not improve the condition of those in the lowest class. If what is known as the Ulster Tenant Right were extended to the whole of Great Britain, it would be but to carve out of the estate of the landlord an estate for the tenant. The condition of the labourer would not be a whit improved. If landlords were prohibited from asking an increase of rent from their tenants, and from ejecting a tenant so long as the fixed rent was paid, the body of the producers would gain nothing. Economic rent would still increase, and would still steadily lessen the proportion of the produce going to labour and capital. The only difference would be that the tenants of the first landlords, who would become landlords in their turn, would profit by the increase. If by a restriction upon the amount of land any one individual might hold, by the regulation of devices and successions, or by cumulative taxation, the few thousand landholders of Great Britain should be increased by two or three million, these two or three million people would be gainers. But the rest of the population would gain nothing. They would have no more share in the advantages of land ownership than before. And if, what is manifestly impossible, a fair distribution of the land were made among the whole population, giving to each his equal share, and laws enacted which would interpose a barrier to the tendency to concentration by forbidding the holding by any one of more than the fixed amount, what would become of the increase of population? Just what may be accomplished by the greater division of land may be seen in those districts of France and Belgium where minute division prevails. 
that such a division of land is on the whole much better, and that it gives a far more stable basis to the state than that which prevails in England, there can be no doubt. But that it does not make wages any higher or improve the condition of the class who have only their labour is equally clear. These French and Belgian peasants practice a rigid economy unknown to any of the English-speaking peoples. And if such striking symptoms of the poverty and distress of the lowest class are not apparent as on the other side of the channel, it must, I think, be attributed not only to this fact, but to another fact, which accounts for the continuance of the minute division of the land, that material progress has not been so rapid. Neither has population increased with the same rapidity. On the contrary, it has been nearly stationary nor have improvements in the modes of production been so great. Nevertheless, Monsieur de Lavalier, all of whose prepossessions are in favour of small holdings, and whose testimony will therefore carry more weight than that of English observers, who may be supposed to harbour a prejudice for the system of their own country, states in his paper on the land systems of Belgium and Holland, printed by the Cobden Club, that the condition of the labourer is worse under this system of the minute division of land than it is in England, while the tenant-farmers, for tenancy largely prevails even where the morcellement is greatest, are rack-rented with a mercilessness unknown in England, and even in Ireland, and the franchise, so far from raising them in the social scale, is but a source of mortification and humiliation to them, for they are forced to vote according to the dictates of the landlord instead of following the dictates of their own inclination and convictions. But while the subdivision of land can thus do nothing to cure the evils of land monopoly, while it can have no effect in raising wages or in improving the condition of the lowest classes, its tendency is to prevent the adoption or even advocacy of more thoroughgoing measures, and to strengthen the existing unjust system by interesting a larger number in its maintenance. Monsieur de Lavalier, in concluding the paper from which I have quoted, urges the greater division of land as the surest means of securing the great landowners of England from something far more radical. Although in the districts where land is so minutely divided, the condition of the labourer is, he states, the worst in Europe, and the renting farmer is much more ground down by his landlord than the Irish tenant, yet, feelings hostile to social order, Monsieur de Lavalier goes on to say, do not manifest themselves, because the tenant, although ground down by the constant rise of rents, lives among his equals, peasants like himself, who have tenants whom they use just as the large landholder does his. His father, his brother, perhaps the man himself, possesses something like an acre of land, which he lets at as high a rent as he can get. In the public house peasant proprietors will boast of the high rents they get for their lands, just as they might boast of having sold their pigs or potatoes very dear. Letting at as high a rent as possible comes thus to seem to him to be quite a matter of course, and he never dreams of finding fault with either the landowners as a class or with property in land. His mind is not likely to dwell on the notion of a caste of domineering landlords, of bloodthirsty tyrants fattening on the sweat of impoverished tenants and doing no work themselves. For those who drive the hardest bargains are not the great landowners, but his own fellows. 
Thus the distribution of a number of small properties among the peasantry forms a kind of rampart and safeguard for the holders of large estates, and peasant property may without exaggeration be called the lightning conductor that averts from society dangers which might otherwise lead to violent catastrophes. The concentration of land in large estates among a small number of families is a sort of provocation of levelling legislation. The position of England, so enviable in many respects, seems to me to be in this respect full of danger for the future. To me, for the very same reason that Monsieur de Lavalier expresses, the position of England seems full of hope. Let us abandon all attempt to get rid of the evils of land monopoly by restricting land ownership. An equal distribution of land is impossible, and anything short of that would be only a mitigation, not a cure, and a mitigation that would prevent the adoption of a cure. Nor is any remedy worth considering that does not fall in with the natural direction of social development, and swim, so to speak, with the current of the times. That concentration is the order of development there can be no mistaking. The concentration of people in large cities, the concentration of handicrafts in large factories, the concentration of transportation by railroad and steamship lines, and of agricultural operations in large fields. The most trivial businesses are being concentrated in the same way. Errands are run and carpet sacks are carried by corporations. All the currents of the time run to concentration. To resist it successfully we must throttle steam and discharge electricity from human service. End of Book 6, Chapter 1, Paragraphs 23 to 54 Recording by Tim Macarios Idiophilus.wordpress.com